You can be a Muslim and be an Assyrian. You can be a Buddhist and be Assyrian. Assyrianism has no ties to a religious belief. Hi friends and welcome to episode 73 of the Assyrian Podcast. This is Steve and it is so good to be here with you and I'm over the moon excited for you to meet this week's guest and hear a very special announcement. I've known Wilfred Bedalkas for a long time and he's been a consistent source of grounding and inspiration for my Assyrian heritage and so many other areas of my life as well. Wilfred carries a wealth of knowledge insight, perspective, and practical wisdom. He's truly one of the wise ones in our community, and you're going to hear that in this episode. In 1994, Wilford founded the online newsletter called Zinda, and by 2005, it had 30,000 subscribers from 45 different countries. The last issue of Zinda magazine was published in 2009. This guy knows Assyrians. Since August 2015, Wilford has been teaching the Assyrian language and history class at San Jose State University in California. Currently, Wilford and his wife Nina and their two children, Inanna and Enlil, live in the capital city of California, Sacramento. I would tell you to get on your boogie board, but instead, get out your hoverboard as we remember the past, dream about the future, and recreate the present on this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. Before we begin, support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Calgaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know someone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Calgaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen to the podcast. Send us an email at info at or direct message us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. And now, here is Wilfred Bedalquez. I am so thrilled and excited to have you on the Assyrian Podcast, and I want to give you a chance to say hello to everyone. Steve, this is very exciting for me. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited to be on the Assyrian Podcast. Allow me to also say a greeting in Assyrian to sure. my fellow Assyrians. Thank Thank you for that. And here we are in Oakland, California, sitting in this amazing studio, and we get to have this special time together. I want to actually dive in by doing a little framing for your background, and then from there we'll get into the things that I know you love and care about. Sounds good. So, Wilfred, you were born in Iran. Tehran, Iran. Tehran, Iran, the capital. The, The capital. And 12 years old, your parents leave, you're 12, your parents leave to come to the United States on the same day that the Shah of Iran left during the revolution. Correct. And then your parents go to Connecticut, then they find their way to San Jose, and you have two brothers, your mom, all in the Bay Area, but your father passed away many years ago. He did. He died in a car accident in 93. 
And you were pretty young at the time. I was in my 20s. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So uh, it was actually a big event, which, you know, an event like that affects you uh, deeply for many, many decades even. So, but yes, my mom is still with us and uh, she lives in San Jose. And you're based out of Sacramento. You got a wife, you got two kids, and we'll talk more about that as we go on. But the other thing about you that's also interesting, you have two different bachelor's degree, a bachelor's in molecular biology from San Jose State, and then political science from UC Irvine. That's correct. And then you're certificated from UC Santa Cruz in human resources. And that's the the one that I've been using ever since uh, as an occupation. Yes. Uh, so I never got to use my molecular biology or political science uh, degrees as an occupation, but I am an HR, a director of HR operations at a high-tech company in the Bay Area. But it's clear that your education has really transformed you. It inspires you. Like Absolutely. It's the driver behind how you see the world. Yes. Now, one of the things that happened in your life that most of Assyrians, many Assyrians know about you is you started the magazine called Zinda. Yes, yes. They, I'm probably more famous as Mr. Zinda than Wilfred Bedalchas. I got you. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm, uh, probably many of your listeners who are about your age might not know much about Zinda magazine because it's been, um, it, it stopped publishing in 2008. But this was a magazine, an online magazine, the first Assyrian online magazine that went on for about 15 years. So I actually wanted to uh, read a couple things that I found off of there. Uh-huh. So Zinda mean spark of fire in modern Syriac Assyrian. Zinda's red swoosh is a rendering of the seventh letter in the Assyrian alphabet, the letter Zen, and the first letter of the word Zinda. For more information about the Assyrian culture and heritage, write to Zinda magazine. <laughs> you got that from our website. I got huh? it from the website. Now, here's what's interesting. The very first post on Zinda magazine says this. We are now prepared to ride the waves of the internet from one corner of the globe to another and spread the gospel of the new Assyrianism. More about this in our future issues, but for now, let's enjoy the birth of a new era. The children of the ancient Mesopotamians who wrote on clay tablets are communicating via electronic mail. Soon, Zenda will become the most effective medium for informal exchange of ideas and news among students, professionals, and intellectuals of a new Assyrian society. No material received is ever edited, and all opinions are published without any censorship. Currently, the subscribers to Zenda include students and professionals from several universities and corporations in six European and North American countries, and this is just the beginning. So get out your electronic boogie board and start <laughs> riding the electron intellectual wave of the new Assyria. Wow. Steve, when I wrote that uh, in 1994, we had 12 subscribers. I used to write the entire magazine issue in, a, in the body of an email. In those days, there was no browsers. We had no... It was like Netscape it or was, something, Yeah, right? Netscape was in its very, very early stages. And we did not even have the concept of a web page at that time. There were no web pages. I mean, there were, but people did not just go and create web pages. This was a corporate thing that companies did. So this is the very, very early times in, 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 the, in the development of Internet. And um, so Zinda was sent out to 12 people in four or five cities in the U.S. and Europe via email. 
and then we moved from email format to um, to uh, HTML web browser format and that was a big thing for us because now people could actually come to a Zinda website and see it anytime and by the time Zinda magazine um, stopped publishing we had over 30,000 unique visitors every week so and we consider that as as of course um, most of those people were notified via email of the issuance of a Zinda magazine issue every week so uh, with 30,000 subscribe uh, less than 30 about 27,000 subscribers about 30,000 that visited us every week to this day Zinda magazine is probably the the most subscribed means of communication for any Assyrian organization and truly, when it says um, this will be, every article will be uncensored, published uncensored, it was. Okay. And that's why it became such a controversial magazine. Yeah. We so would not censor anyone. what does it mean? Like, I could send an article saying, hey, Zinda, I have a problem with this organization and their blah, 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 and you guys will just publish it. Absolutely. And we would actually, I would go back to you and say, can you explain what your problem with this organization is? And you would write back and, and you might even say, you know, I think this man is, is crazy. And I would go back and say, yeah, you can't say this about a specific person. Please explain his craziness, and, but don't refer to him as crazy. So we would, we would do this a lot. And, and then that, that would be the level of censorship. We did not appreciate individuals being uh, condemned. Um, well, they could be accused of something, but there had to be a good reason why that was the case. Uh, but still, people were not uh, comfortable with that. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they did not want a bishop of a church to be condemned of an act. For example, a, a leader of a political party be condemned of an, of saying something that he may have just said uh, a, in the passing whim, yeah. and on a whim. And they're like, why are you mention, mentioning this? Well, yeah. he just said that. Oh, no. But see, you, you have to censor these things. We never did. So that's why uh, we had the readers, your everyday readers loved it. But was would that then fall into more of a gossip kind of editorial it, you people would say that they would say you know it's it's more of a because becoming a gossip editorial but at the same time it opened up everyone's eyes to what really was happening behind the scenes mm -hmm. they saw the corruption that was going on in our churches in our political parties in our federations they they saw that and they saw the people that were behind this yeah it, it was um, fun times yeah so that was about a 15 year run it was 15 years. Yeah. And during that time, you got sued several times? Several times. So yes. The, so the magazine was sued. So like different people you wrote about came after you guys. Right. And and none of those lawsuits were victorious uh, against Zinda magazine. Uh, we did not pay a penny to anyone. In most cases, when we would provide further documents to the to the lawyers of the defendants, uh, they would stop because yeah. we they knew that we were telling the truth. We had foolproof documents, but at some point, you know, it it becomes really difficult to continue when um, you are uh, just uh, being attacked from so many angles: political parties, uh, civic organizations, churches. Um, and so, what happened when Zinda magazine uh, stopped publishing? All these entities began 
doing whatever whatever you they were doing before Zinda magazine. And so nobody was there to stop them. So you view Zinda as an accountability agent? Absolutely. It, it it was actually. I mean, this this was this was the only way Assyrians could hold a political party, a church, a civic organization, or even an individual accountable for their actions. And that's the thinking behind the open source. Anyone can publish. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. When I read the opening paragraph that you that's on the website, and you talk a lot about the new Assyrianism, mm-hmm. what does that mean? So you will see this theme showing up every few articles or sometimes every few months in, in Zinna magazine. Um, so what is the old Assyrianism and the new Assyrianism? Um, the old Assyrianism was your believing in your identity, your Assyrian identity, as it is rooted in your history and in your heritage. The new Assyrianism was your identity as is today rooted in what you think of yourself as an Assyrian. Okay. You are hitting on some foundational points of identity, what it means to be an Assyrian. And what you're wanting to do is you're trying to create a community of people around this magazine who view themselves differently. What was wrong with the way people previous what, what's wrong with version a of that nothing wrong nothing wrong we have to understand that identities evolve there is nothing wrong of if you ask someone in in new england in 1680s or 1740s what is your current british identity they probably would not relate to you even though they came from great britain they would have a new identity and the same family a hundred years later had a completely different identity from what it did in late early 1700s right so identities evolve there's nothing wrong with that what matters is that you maintain your dna and i'm not talking about the biological dna but your the dna of your identity along all these different zones of uh, time zones so for example an american in 1850s could trace himself gladly to his great 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 parents in ireland for example mm-hmm. right so he maintained that heritage but he as an american is not doesn't think and doesn't Like he's act. Irish. Exactly. So we have to understand the same thing has been going on with us also. So there is no way my son today, or, or say 10 years from now, is going to think the same way as I did in Iran or, or as my great-great-grandfather did in, in Iraq. So it, it, it changes. So what I wanted all of us to understand is we have to constantly re-examine ourselves and ask ourselves, what is our identity today? And how is this identity connected to, to the identity of where we were back in the days of uh, Mesopotamia and Bednahrain? It's a very difficult question to ask, and, but you, you need a medium for people to, to start talking about this and learn from each other. That's why if when people came up with ideas like, let's call ourselves Assyrian, Chaldean, Syriac, we did not say, oh God, no, that's that's horrible. Let's not talk. No, let them experiment this. Let them play with this idea. Uh, let's see where this is going to go. So I myself, 
people call me extremist because I believe we're all Assyrian and stop calling yourself Syriac and Chaldean and Nestorian or whatever. Those are just relative terms based on your religious identities, your linguistic identities. We're all Assyrian. But I allowed this experiment, this experiment to go on in Zinda magazine so people could could begin to understand better why they're here. So you put on this entire production, like you created the whole thing. Yes. And then it grew because you're getting lots and lots of different people submitting. Yes. And at the heart of the whole thing is how do we give more ideas, voices? How do we reimagine who we are? And and while we're doing this, those who are at the forefront hold them accountable. I see. So that's where the lawsuits come in. Yes. <laughs> because now people are saying, oh, I can actually express this pain, this hurt, this corruption, this fraud, whatever it is, and Zinda is going to publish it. And people actually care what Zinda has to say. Now, the interesting thing is, I mentioned earlier, you know, was it a gossip place? But your own background, you're, you're too intelligent to be yeah. doing a tabloid magazine. Yes. You were trying to actually, in if you peruse the archives, as I was perusing it, you learn so much. Yes. Just about people you never heard of. Man, we can interview like a hundred new people now for the next, you know, few years for the Assyrian podcast just by looking at those archives, going and finding these people, like what happened to them. Yes. So this was truly Wilfred Bet Alcus's baby because it was a combination of sort of inspiring people with the new Assyrian way of seeing themselves, holding people accountable. Yes. And then also giving Assyrians like access to all these different powerful Assyrians within our community. Now, you did that for 15 years, and where were you living at the time? Uh, my wife and I were living in Washington, D.C. Uh, we, Zinda Magazine, had an office in Washington, D.C., and, and I was also working uh, at that time uh, doing my HR consulting uh, for the government. So we, we were there for a few years. And this was a massive kind of side job, basically. Yes. Uh, it On average, it would take me uh, about at least 15 hours uh, to edit all these articles. I wasn't the only, of course, author or editor. We had a team of editors and uh, writers we called Z Crew. And um, I'm, I'm sure some of them are listening to this right now. Fantastic team of people from Australia, from uh, Germany, Sweden, uh, U.S., um, Middle East. It was wonderful, wonderful, and Russia. Uh, so they would collect this this information and they would translate the uh, letters and articles from their native um, uh, languages, if they received it, say, in Swedish or German, into English. Then then I would edit the English uh, part of it. So this um, this happened every week. Every week I had to we had to get Zinda out on Monday morning. Every Monday is when it came every out. Every Monday it came oh, okay. out. Yeah. So and every issue, if you go back, you will see it. The min the number the minimum number of each issue was about fifty to sixty pages. Yeah. Every week. I mean, so this I'm, is high production. I'm telling you, it was. Why it's, didn't uh, you scale down a little bit and maybe just do one good article a week? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You guys were going for the gold, huh? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, there was, honestly, there was so much information that was coming to us. Why? Was it, because I don't, if we had that going today, do you think it would get the same kind of publicity? Like, 
Do you think there? I know where you're going with this. Is there, are there? Are there? Are there the, is there the volume of stories today that there was then? Assyrians have so much to talk about, if they have the right medium. This is what angers me about the television networks, the magazines that are out there right now. They have to present themselves as true medium of information, uncensored and unbiased. And they will be flooded with people asking them to, to give them a voice. That is not happening right now. Uh, it's, it's so sad that there's so much going on right now, even Facebook. It's honestly nothing ever came close to what Zinda was after Zinda stopped. It's, it's just an amazing, it was an amazing experiment, and, uh, but it was too costly for me. At, at that time, I was spending, I don't know if I should share this information or not, but I guess I could, it doesn't matter. Well, we're uh, trying to keep things uncensored here. Okay, so. there you go, I like that. We, we were spending about somewhere around forty to $50,000 a year to keep the publication going. Um, some of these photos and all articles were, we, we paid magazines like, let's say, New York Times, or we paid them for those articles because they were all copyrighted, and we never published a copyrighted article without paying for the copyright. So this was costly. I mean, right now you see these websites and magazines, that online magazines that just publish an article without even asking the, the source for, for permission. Ours, every photo, everything was sourced. Like we would sometimes pay $600, $700 for a single Getty picture to publish in Zinda magazine. We would pay our professional journalists by words. Uh, I don't remember even, but it was, it was like 20 cents or $2 a word. I can't remember, but it was, it was we paid and them. And you were, you were paying this? Where and was this, this money And this was coming all from? coming from uh, uh, my own company. I had a company uh, in that I, I mentioned. We, we did uh, HR consulting, and my, the company paid for all this. And when the financial crisis hit in 2008, a lot of my clients went away. The government, of, of course, we, we changed also hands from the Bush administration to Obama. And Obama, Obama's administration targeted a few agencies in the government. And a lot of these government uh, programs went away and they were also my clients. So the, the financial crisis really did hurt my business. And I could no longer sustain the magazine financially. And I was also blessed with my first child at the same time. Oh, okay. And so I, I, it was just a little too much. So it was time for you it to It was say, time for me to say, you know, I, I need to focus on my uh, growing family, focus on the business so I can get back to, to where I was before. And, and, you know, it just so many things happened. We ended up going to Russia, my wife and I. We lived there. She lived there uh, for about almost four years. I was there for two and then I came back and uh, brought my family back here in the U.S. And we ended up again in uh, Silicon Valley for a couple of years. And then we moved to Sacramento. So, of course, um, you mentioned the word baby uh, when you refer to Zinda. It's, uh, you never forget that child that you have given life to. And uh, it's always been in the back of my uh, head. And, and it's, it's, like I said, it's really sad to see that Ten years later, I, I still don't see anything that um, remotely does what this uh, magazine uh, did do. And I know I still get emails from readers saying, 
what is going on um are you can you bring it back and all that so is there a is there a possible zinda reunion at some point so you're you're smiling while you're saying this but i tell you i i want you to know that i the reason i wanted to have this interview so late in after you started this was because i wanted to come to a point to make this announcement that we've been working on the new Zinda magazine for the last year. I have a new team of designers and developers who've been working on this project. We believe we are going to go ahead publishing the first issue in the beginning of next year. So this is all new content. This is all new content, oh. a brand new Zinda magazine. Our target date is March of 2020. Uh, this will be a brand new Zinda magazine, but what we are doing right now, we are taking every article from the old Zinda magazine and putting it in the new format. And I think every Zinda, former Zinda reader, and any Assyrian and non-Assyrian familiar with Zinda would be very proud of what we have achieved. So, Steve, I'm announcing this for the first yeah. time on the Assyrian podcast. Very so, cool. Yes. Well, we're honored, man. We're going to... We're going to find all the next people we're going to be interviewing just from that. <laughs> um, so March 2020. That's the target date. Uh, we, we, would be, we could publish this um, in two months if we didn't have to uh, move all the old stuff into this. It takes, it's taking us a long time because old Zinna magazine is very unstructured. Uh, and so this one is not. It's very structured. And so we have to move every issue manually. So it is taking us a long time. I have a team that's working on that right now. It's taking us about two or three issues per week. And so, as you know, there's 15 years mm -hmm. worth of issues. So it's taking a long time. And I also want to say to fans of Zinda magazine that the Nineveh Press in Europe is um, is working with me on putting together a beautiful book that which will include all the classic articles of Zinda magazine in one volume. So like the greatest hits? Like the greatest hits of Zinda magazine and uh, my friend Thomas is working with me from the Nineveh uh, Press on this. So hopefully we will have that book also ready by the big, by the time Zinda magazine comes out. I had no idea you were doing this. I know. I wanted to just wait until I mention it, and and I was I actually called my wife last night. I said, Nina, should I should I do this? Should I go on? She goes, Yeah, totally. This is great. So, you know, that brings me to another point here, Steve. I'm really really proud of what you have done. Thanks. Honestly, I'm. I'm you know, I, yeah. I so. Be proud, man. Well, it's fun. I, I yeah. love it. And yeah, you're right. We have an amazing team. So yeah. I feel in many ways we want to also encourage and inspire Assyrians and also expose them to Assyrians they'd never heard of. So a guy like exactly. you, I, I think many Assyrians now, not as many have, you know, since Zinda went away, you haven't really, you, you speak a lot, you teach a lot at different events. And so we're going to talk about your class at San Jose State, but one thing you wrote, and I want to touch on that, especially considering the announcement, you wrote in Zinda Magazine in uh, article 1998 called The Voice Within, you wrote, hmm. My body is weary and my mind confused. I'm tired of admonishing the so-called educated. Some laugh at my persistence, some ignore my remarks, and others are telling me that I may not even be yours. They have abandoned your faith and your God. 
I am even more tired of blaming the English, the French, the Jews, and the Arabs, the Persians, and the Kurds for your own faults and shortcomings. I have now succumbed to a dark corner of my fantasy world and silently shed tears for those yet unborn. Wake up, Assyria, and face the reality. What was going on for you to write that? The concept of Assyria uh, in the new in the old Assyrianism has to be deconstructed. I'm talking to the old Assyria, saying, "Enough is enough. You need to be deconstructed. You need to be recreated, because I cannot continue." blaming everyone around me for doing what they're doing because I'm beginning to find out that this is the new Assyria. This is the new reality. You're not. So this is, again, a struggle. This article is about a personal struggle dealing with the old identity of the Assyrian Assyrianism and uh, the emerging identity. It's it was um, it was a very impactful uh, article. I, I believe it's been translated in several languages. I even saw one in Assyrian, and and it's it's a beautifully written version of it in Assyrian. And when you l- read that article, Steve, you you see that every word still applies to how we are today. Tw- it was written about twenty years ago, I guess. And I sometimes read articles that were written in the Assyrian magazines from Urmia and Mosul and Beirut 100 years ago, and they still resonate with me. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying that is that the essential problem facing Assyrians is a mindset issue. Absolutely. Okay, so what's the broken mindset or the bad mindset, and then what's the right mindset or the healthier mindset? So this is what I wanted to do in accomplish Zinda? in Zinda. Yeah. Who knows what the right mindset is? But then then it becomes unsustainable. It's like a never-ending questioning. No, no, that's not true. Listen, look at what's happening in America right now. We are trying to redefine ourselves as Americans. Now I'm talking about America, right? So those who are moving us towards the edge, we're afraid of that edge. We're afraid that we may fall. So we keep labeling them, all these words that sound harsh. We're calling them socialists. We're calling them communists. We're calling them progressives, right? That's because we are not sure what's going to happen. But while this struggle is taking place, believe it or not, this battle will end up in a new identity, Mm -hmm. which will be a combination of the the crazies on the left and the crazies on the right. Mm And that's going to be the new American identity in, say, 2085 or, or 2100. There's nothing wrong with this. And who knows what the identity is going to look like. What matters is that the, the American in 65 years from now will still be the beacon of light to everyone outside of America who is in pursuit of freedom happiness and liberty right that is that will never change so the question that i ask myself is what is that for me what is it that as an assyrian assyrian, what did the assyrian 
did 3,000 years ago that should not change in my DNA? Mm -hmm. And that is a very interesting question because now you're going, you have to go back in history. You have to read everything about the, their literature, their religious beliefs. You know, I always remind my students at San Jose State, Assyrians have been Christian for 2,000 years. They were non-Christian for 4,000 years. Imagine that. What, do you think that that 4,000-year-old DNA has disappeared and all of a sudden we have been transformed to this completely new person? Absolutely not. So it was never the old pre-Christian Assyrian becoming Christian. For us, it was a simple transformation. It was basically how you as a human being are a teenager today and tomorrow you become a 40-year-old adult. You're the same person. That's what happened with the Assyrians. So then my question was, what stayed within Yeah, that so what Assyria? are the distinctives? So for me, an Assyrian... You know how in uh, Jews refer to themselves as the chosen, mm-hmm. right? The chosen people. What do you think Assyrians would refer to themselves? If the Jews were the chosen people, what are Assyrians? It's a good question. Right? I believe Assyrians, not that I believe, I, I know so, they thought of themselves as the enlightened ones. Not mm. the chosen, but the enlightened. What knowledge did they have? So, exactly. So, let's think about the light. Enlightened means you have received light, right? You are light. So, Assyrians thought of themselves as the rays of, of the sun. Sun was Shamash. They were Mishamshane, Shamashe. That's the word Shamasha comes from. Mishamshane. They are the rays of the light that comes from Shamash. What that means is that wherever an Assyrian goes, darkness disappears. An Assyrian is enlightened and gives light. In China, in Korea, and in Japan, when Christianity came to those regions, do you know what they called the Christian Assyrians? The people of the light. And they called Christianity the religion of the light because they knew Assyrians referred to themselves as the enlightened, Mm -hmm. as the people that gave light. So what Assyrians did, completely in contradiction to what our enemies usually write in their history books, they did not go to other countries to devour their infrastructure and, and rape and pillage and all that. It wasn't, that wasn't the case. They would see an opportunity to make a kingdom that was economically fourth world in our current language, and they would go in and they would install an Assyrian governor. And before you know it, all of a sudden, people are educated, the economy is great, everything's wonderful. What would usually happen is that that kingdom, after 100, 200 years of being a flourishing economy, would all of a sudden say, you know, I don't like this new religion or these Assyrian foreigners. So they would rebel against the, uh, the country. 
we see that all the time, even today, when America goes to other countries, frees up the country, and then before you know it, they come back and they call the uh, liberation as invasion but and so occupation. many people would say no 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 the american goes in and they mess stuff up right they do but initially it's always considered a liberation even for the people that think they're liberating us from saddam hussein's of the world they're liberating us from the kim Jong of uh north so you're korea initially they're on initially board, everybody was right but but it changes later yeah. right because those economies would flourish and they become strong enough to oppose the country so assyrians wherever they went this is what they did so think about it how can an empire exist for over a thousand years stretching from Egypt to almost India, right? Even today, there is no way you can have that big of a power anywhere in the world. That continued for over a thousand years. Now, if you have so many enemies, you can only sustain yourself one way. You have to destroy those enemies constantly. But at some point, within a, within 50 years, you would go away. So these little monarchies and kingdoms, they, will, they were not all against the Assyrian Empire. Why? Because it benefited them. Mm-hmm. It enlightened them. Yeah. So you're saying Assyrians need to reimagine themselves as the, reimagine themselves as the enlightened people, which ties deepest to their roots. And they have to, wherever they go, They have to bring light to darkness. This is why, Steve, this is the only reason why we transformed from where we were before to a new faith called Christianity. It was the closest thing that could come to that understanding of enlightenment. In fact, if you look at the annals of our very last kings, starting with King Ashurbanipal. That man was the epitome of an enlightened man. He actually stopped campaigns against other uh, countries. He stops and he says, you know what? It's time to collect knowledge from everywhere, builds the library. So what happened was that slowly the empire withered away because it was no longer interested in maintaining itself as an empire. And when you had armies of the the Babylonians and the Persians, which to this day is an enigma to most Assyriologists, how could those armies of those two uh, kingdoms be able to defeat the great power of Nineveh? The transformation had already started. So you're saying that the Assyrians moved beyond empire. Absolutely. Which actually was a was a tangible weakness physically, but it was it, but it was a better way to be human is to Absolutely. eliminate. So this is very interesting because what you're pushing, what you're saying is that uh, Assyrians ought not to be interested in their own empire. Absolutely not. That because it is a meaningless feat in yeah. in the development of. Uh, is this documented anywhere? Like uh, this, what you're saying about Ashurbanipal and how he's seeing empire? You know, it's interesting you're saying that. Just that last week, I was reading these articles about the new prime minister of uh, United Kingdom that they caught him 
wearing Ashurbanipal socks. Uh, I don't know, did you see that article? No, oh, yeah, no. yeah. He was like, for three days, he kept wearing the Ashurbanipal socks. I think, and there was, of course, the Ashurbanipal exhibition at the uh, British Museum yeah. um, um, uh, running until the February of this year for a few months. I think there is an incredible interest in that man because even uh, today's sociologists and historians are finding out there was something interesting going on at that point in time. Why would an empire so powerful within 40-year period become as it did in 612 BC? It's not, I want to go back to what you said. It's the mindset. When the mindset changes, Steve, everything goes away or everything comes. It's the mindset. It's the most powerful thing. We as Assyrians have lost a coherent mindset for the new Assyrian identity. We don't even have the coherent mindset for the old Assyrian identity. And the main reason for this is one thing, genocide. That's what it did to us. When Assyrians in the last 100 years went through, a little more than 100 years, went through three cataclysmic genocides and massacres, starting with the genocides of 1840s in, in Turkey under the Ottoman rule, that, ha that changed our mindset completely. How? You no longer see yourself as the enlightened or the ones who give light. Because for 400 years, we were forced to leave our homes in the plains and move up to the mountains. We were isolated. We, our light just went away. We were just hiding. And the massacres of these genocides forced us to leave those highlands. We came down, but when we came down, we saw something else. The imperialist powers were already there waiting for us, and they betrayed us. So our neighbors uh, attacked us, they murdered us, they raped us, and then when we came down seeking help and refuge, the Christian coalitions in those days they did not help us. They actually betrayed us. And so at that point, all you think about is survival. This is no longer a time to think about mindsets. You just want to survive. Which and becomes the adopted mindset. Exactly. We're victims. We're just trying to survive. Exactly. And, and now over the last probably 25 years, you're starting to get people, maybe I say the last 100 years really, you're starting to get people who are saying, uh-oh, this victim mentality is not going to work. Yes, it doesn't. But it's so much a part of our DNA. We it don't is. have our own country. You know, we've been through genocides. Right. So how do you honor those, um, what's come before with these genocides and what we've been through, but then gain a new mindset? What, what does that new mindset look like? I know you keep saying, well, we're still developing it and it yes. needs to be fresh. Yes. But yet, even when you're developing a new mindset, there's a next step. There's yes. a next thing that will lead you to the next thing. Creation of a new mindset is always done by the intellectuals 
of a people. So who are our intellectuals? <laughs> who, who's the real brain trust? Who's the visionary? Who's the one that within the Assyrian world is going beyond what everybody else is thinking and is seeing a greater vision of things? Where is that happening? Who is that person? Who are those people? Is it Zenda 2.0? <laughs> There are several people, entities, very good friends that I believe are fully capable of coming together and intellectually helping us, perhaps you yourself, um, would come together and truly do this self-examination and be very honest with themselves and with their people. And then this has to be formulated in a in a document that all of us will have to review, examine, spit on, worship, whatever it is, and it will help us understand where we need to be. Yeah, that we're too busy right now worrying about the uh, the parties at the conventions and and, and hey, everything. There's else. nothing wrong with nothing the wrong parties. with that, man. Nothing wrong with that. But I but that's that that has become our only agenda right now. So so if if we need to move on, we need to really not um, move on engage. from conventions. No no no. But move on from the from this from surviving. Yeah, victim mentality. The victim mentality and surviving. We need to move on because. Do you have to remember, you are the enlightened ones. Yes. So I love this tangent we've been on. And the reason why I've hung in there with it is because it is who you are. This is what you think about. This is what you wrestle with. Yes. You've been wrestling with it for how many? 40, 50 years going back to when Zinda started. (laughs) You've been, this is, this is your lifeblood. Yes. Yes. And you know, if if tomorrow Wilfred dies, no one is going to look back and say, Wilfred was an excellent, amazing businessman. They're going to say, man, Wilfred, he eat, breathed, thought about his own Assyrian identity. Where where was the first spark? I know you named Zenda as the spark of fire, means yes. Zenda. But t- take us to the spark that started Wilfred. Wilfred. Oh, wow. I'm glad you're asking me that question. Um, well, I'm glad that you're glad. <laughs> we want to make people glad oh, when this we're is, talking this to This is good, them. Steve. Um, um, so... When I, when my family moved to San Jose, California in 1982, 83, around that time, I, at that time, had no understanding of who Assyrians are. I knew we were Assyrian. Your parents, like, told my you you're par- My parents were way too, my, too involved in the church, and they had no interest in... Assyrianism. Uh, so for them, speaking Assyrian was paramount. Yeah, so this and, is back in when there was a distinction of we're Assyrians right, who go to church, right, we're nationals. Right, we're national, exactly. But what they also did was in, in Urmi, they became very active in the Assyrian politics. Another uh, uncle uh, in my family was actually one of the co-founders of the Mahabad Republic. He was where he worked with the the Kurdish uh, Barzani family in Iran, and they worked together. They created the Mohammed Republic, which was the first modern Kurdish republic in Iran. 
And of course, the Shah of Iran uh, did chase them away, but they captured my great uncle and he was hanged. Um, so when I've had several of these uncles that were killed for their Assyrian nationalism and their support of other entities for the Assyrian nationalism. So my family decided at some point, maybe 50, 100, I don't know, 60 years ago, not to get involved with the Assyrian politics anymore. So they got mired into the whole church thing. And in fact, when when um, I became very interested in Assyrian politics and Assyrian nationalism, one of my uh, uncles came all the way from Iran and he warned me, he said, do not do this, stay away, because the same fate will follow you as it did for your great uncles. So that's why my parents um, were really not interested in that. But when I came to San Jose with my family, I met two individuals that completely changed me, transformed me into what I am today. The first one was Dr. Ashur Murad Khan. He was the founder, or some may say co-founder, I always believe him as a founder of the Assyrian Universal Alliance in 1968. He was involved with the uh, Assyrian uh, Cultural Society of Tehran uh, in the 50s, and then that slowly became Assyrian Universal Alliance. I'm not that that didn't become, but he uh, founded Assyrian Universal Alliance along with some other friends that uh, were working with him. This man just opened my eyes. He, I had no idea what it meant to be Assyrian, what Assyrians did. He would give me all these books to read, all these articles that he had written, and so the he became a mentor for my Assyrianism in that sense, my Assyrian identity. He, I understood what Assyrian heritage was. I always thought of myself as Iranian Christian. So when I hear these people saying I'm Iraqi Christian, I don't immediately uh, condemn them because I myself, until I was 16, I always just thought of myself as an Iranian Christian. The second per person was my... Uh, is my sort of spiritual mentor. He was Rabbi William Daniel. And he taught me the Assyrian language. And um, everything I love about Assyrian language is from him. Because what he taught me was that this language is not just a language to convey, to express yourself. You have to go deeper. You have to understand where this language came from and what it is doing to your identity. So was Robbie was Robbie William Daniel from Turlock? Yes, he uh, I believe he uh, he was from Chicago and um, um, did he work at the university? No. Okay, never mind. I'm thinking of someone different. Yeah. Um, Robbie William Daniel is considered probably one of the most influential, the most influential Assyrian uh, poets and uh, uh, music composer in the, of the 20th century. Um, and how did you interact with him? He was teaching Assyrian language classes in San Jose. And I, um, one of my new friends, Assyrian friends in San Jose, uh, invited me to go and, and sit in one of his classes. And uh, that was the beginning of an incredible uh, friendship. Uh, between me and Robbie William Daniel, that's uh, these two individuals had incredible impact 
on um, on on my development as an Assyrian in U.S. and and with the the importance of bringing these two individuals um, together is that they did not emphasize the external facets of the Assyrian identity. There was no, I did not learn how to dance, how to sing, how to uh, do paintings, or it wasn't like that. It was developing yourself spiritually, not, and I'm not talking about um, spiritual in the sense of a faith, or I'm talking about Assyrian spirituality. Really, understanding yourself and your place in the world as an Assyrian. And what that helped me... And Are you they, talking about Assyrian pride? It, pride is a... It's a bad word. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's actually... You, no, there is a pride uh, involved here, but that's sort of a symptom of this. Uh, so uh, let me be more specific. When you are enlightened, what happens to you? You want to shed that knowledge or that chachimuta, that uh, wisdom to others. If you don't have the light anymore, you are not a wise chachima. And chachima is the word that in Arabic later becomes hakim, chachima. So wisdom was the core yeah. of Assyrian identity. This is why, for example, our Assyrian winged bulls have the human head. Human head on a winged bull symbolized chachimuta. It symbolized wisdom. So this is what we were. And now we have come to a point where that wisdom is not being conveyed. Now then you have to ask yourself, what is this chachimuta that we can offer the people around us because there is a chachimuta that people around us need. So how did William Daniel get, give that to you? W William Daniel, uh, or Rabbi William Daniel, he would never, just like Zina magazine, he would never tell you, this is the way it is, follow it. He would give you a path. And you had to follow, you would follow this path and you will find it yourself. And the path that he always took you on was linguistic. He would ask you to read a, a page from his poem. And you would read it and he would say, all right, you're going too fast. Go slow. Read it this way. Uh, you had classes you know, with him? Oh, yeah, yeah. So he, we would read his book, Katini Gabara. And... and what does that mean? Uh, Katine, Katine is the name of mm -hmm. the uh, the hero of the story. In Gabara, of course, the great Katine. Uh, it's, it's the story of this Assyrian uh, Hercules, let's say, who has to fight this great monster that has come uh, to this kingdom of Assyria. And and if unless he kills this monster, everyone in the kingdom is going to perish. So there's a lot of, uh, as you can imagine, uh, 
questioning of what is this monster? What is the monster today that has captured us and has taken away the light? And in fact, this monster does take away the light from Assyria. And, and so it is a, it's a beautiful story. So reading Katini Gebara helps you a lot to understand what enlightenment means so and how do you be, become enlightened. So for many people, meaning and why we're here and what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to carry ourselves. It either comes from their religion or some sort of, um, usually it just, it comes from their religion, right? Yes. For you at that time, you're building your own worldview that you feel is vital and healthy and helpful Correct. outside of the church world in the hands of mm. this teacher. Yes. Absolutely. Um, it, it was, this was this had nothing to do with the with the church and the teachings of the church. But interestingly enough, when you understand this whole concept, you will begin to understand that the Assyrian form of Christianity, in particular the Christian the Christianity that was taught in the first two, possibly three centuries, is all about enlightenment. It is because that's the point in our history where this transformation from the old to new takes place. So um, unfortunately, even our churches don't teach that understanding anymore. It has become what we have today as Christianity for Assyrians is a shell. Yeah. Go back to those writings and find out what did the Assyrian Christians of the 1st and the 2nd and 3rd centuries, 80s, what did they say? Because you will understand this, this concept of who the, where the salvation comes from, who is, the, who is the son of God and son of man. This is amazing stuff. If people outside of our churches, Americans, uh, Europeans, if they discover this, they may actually all become a member of the Church of the East because this is powerful, very powerful theology. So, so going back to what you were saying, all this discussion with Rabbi William Daniel was happening outside of the church because this is not tied to church. What church is, is a manifestation. I mean, the Christianity that we have in, in our Assyrian uh, churches is a manifestation of this enlightenment. This enlightenment is much bigger. Just like how the church is not Assyrianism. It's just the small part of what we call Assyrian nation and Assyrianism. It is, uh, it's very powerful. And, and unless we understand this, there is no way we can move from this surviving, um, from surviving mode into a thriving mode and we need to be thriving so if i'm hearing you again correctly you know individually changing your mindset it takes work absolutely it, it takes so much effort and everybody is wired differently so some people rewire themselves by jogging by doing uh, yoga by reading books or doing a retreat or going into nature people have any number of ways of refreshing their mind and rewiring how they see themselves in the world right how in the world could Assyria, again, this goes back to this collective group of people that refer to themselves as Assyrian, who are really 
tied back to that ancient identity, really, that's for yes. many Assyrians, it's still the case. Yes. What you started in Zinda back then didn't actually, it hasn't become the majority of like, the no, mindset. No, it hasn't, absolutely. The, the mindset is still, we used to be this, we used to be that, and how does it move forward? Yeah, that's a very, very crucial question. It cannot be found in a religious belief. Why? Because you can be a Muslim and be an Assyrian. You can be a Buddhist and be Assyrian. Assyrianism has no ties to a religious belief. So we have to understand that first. In fact, millions of Kurds today used to be Assyrian. They all were forced to convert to Islam. And to this day, there are tribes in the Kurdish region that believe, they know that they are, they used to be a Syrian Christian, but they're Muslim. I believe one day they will understand this and they will come back to their roots, but they are now the people on the edge and we are not even dealing with them. Same thing with Shias and Sunnis. Do you really think, Steve, that when an empire is defeated, all its citizens all of a sudden disappear? Absolutely not. They become something else. Other religions come in and they force you to convert to their religion. I believe a lot of Shiites in Iraq used to be Assyrian. For example, one of the holiest cities in Iraq is Karbala, right? You've heard of Karbala. This is an Assyrian city. It used to, it's an Assyrian, it was called Qurbalala, closer to God. The Qurbalala became Karbala. So, and now it's the holiest city of the Shiite religion. There is actually remains of an Assyrian church in the center of Karbala. It used to be a seat of our Assyrian uh, church. It's crazy. I mean, when you think about all these things. So you can be a Muslim, you can be a Buddhist, you can be an atheist, and you are an Assyrian still. So religion doesn't define your Assyrianism. It is, religion is just a facet of, of your identity. That's one of the things I love about talking to you and why I had to get you on the podcast is you're someone who I think has done the work to say, I don't care how every other Assyrian thinks of themselves. I'm going to think of myself differently. Yes. So now you're going to rebrand that into Zinda 2.0. So, <laughs> so whoever's listening to this, that's going to be a part of Zinda. That's, that's the task. But I do want to kind of push back in this one area. You've spent so many years on this stuff, most of your life. Most of my life, absolutely. And now you have two kids, mm -hmm. and you're married, obviously. Yes. What do you want for your two kids? Do you want them to be spending their time on all of this too? I would like them to spend time on this. I would like every Assyrian child to grow up Assyrian, be proud in being a Syrian. Um, this is not just a wish for the continuity of a Syrian identity. We need to enlighten the people around us. But first we have to capture those rays that have been distinguished, I'm sorry, extinguished because of the genocides. You know, it's interesting how we are, I believe um, this is the week of the Remembrance of the Martyrs. That's right. And this is just a perfect time to talk about this because this week we 
commemorate the the people who were pe- perished, killed, uh, sacrificed themselves for the continuity of the Assyrian identity. And many of them was done purely for their belief in their Christian God. We remember those. We remember them whether they were perished, killed because of their Christian belief, Assyrian Christian belief, I should say, or for their Assyrian identity purely. It's important. I want my children to remember, to know this. For example, at our home, on August 7th, there is candles all over the house. We and, and my kids every year ask, why do we do this again? And I show them pictures of Assyrian patriarchs, of, of the political party members, of, um, of women, men who uh, were killed a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. I say, all these people died. They sacrificed. They were daddies and mommies who had kids, but they allowed somebody to do this to them, even though they knew their kids were not going to see them anymore, just so that you and I can speak this language, just so that you and I can, can go to a party and see people are still speaking and dancing in Assyrian, hearing music in Assyrian, reading Assyrian books. It's absolutely important. Yes, I do want that for my kids, but I also don't want it to be an external thing. I want them, well, they're too young right now, but when they grow up, I want them to go through the same transformation as I did so that they understand Assyrianism not because of our music, dances, paintings, and conventions. They need to understand that as a human being, they have historically been enlightened. They have something within them that casts a light on the darkness around them. And they have to understand what that is. And I can tell you, help you a little from what I have understood this. Everywhere ancient Assyrians walked into, the first thing they did, Steve, was they created an infrastructure for that city, for that kingdom, to develop economically. And they did it by instituting the laws, order. They brought order to that place. They brought the Babylonian laws of Hammurabi. They brought the Sumerian laws of Urnemu. They, and we as Christians after uh, Jesus, we actually did the same thing by bringing the laws of this new savior and gave them to other people who did not. This is the function of an Assyrian. Wherever you go, you shed light. Just think of the communities in the Middle East, Muslim communities, and think of the Assyrian neighborhoods. I mean, people who've lived in Baghdad and Mosul and Beirut, and these are not slums. These are not ghettos of that city. These are the high-end neighborhoods. Why is that? Isn't that interesting? Where, wherever an Assyrian goes, that area 
that region flourishes, it vibrates, it becomes enlightened. Isn't that amazing? That's not because you're Christian. That's not because you're, you look different, your skin is different. No. Assyrians bring something, a new energy to that region. And that's why our enemies hate us. Because everyone starts thinking, wow, look at them. This, this neighborhood all of a sudden has changed. There must be something amazing about their identity, their religion. And that scares them. So what do they do? They start drawing letter N in Arabic on the walls. They, they go around destroying our ancient relics. And, and because it's because of the jealousy. These are the people, the enlightened people who have brought light into darkness. We must continue doing that. Well, I think so many people who are listening to this, we're, what we hear when you talk like that is this is what you hear when you go to church. Yes. You hear the pastor say, you know, we as Christians, we're supposed to bring light into the world. Right. You know, there's so much darkness and brokenness. So you're now saying, though, that, that you don't necessarily need to get that inspiration, or you can, it's fine, but that the Syrian spirit can energize you just as much as the Christian spirit. It does. It does. And um, speaking of that, I, I believe it's... Um, you, you probably know this better. I, I don't know if it's in John or in Matthew. It's somewhere Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Yeah. This was the belief of every Assyrian before Christianity. I am the light of the world. See, this, these concepts are not Christian concepts. The, 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 the concept of Jesus being the fish, that's not, or the Christian being the fish, that's an Assyrian concept. Do you know why? The city of Nineveh is the city of Nun, or Nun, which is Nuna. This is, was the city of the fishermen. And so Assyrians believed that they are the fishermen. They are the people that bring light. And, and these concepts are not Christian. They, are not, they were not born in the Gospels of, Christi of the Christian. These concepts, the, the concept of death... And resurrection in three days was what Tammuz did every year. Tammuz died, and three days later, he was brought to life. What was Jesus' connection to Assyrians? Assyrians, when they discovered this new god come in Palestine, to them, this was their Tammuz. No, I'm talking and about that's the historical Jesus, like the actual Jesus person. The historical Jesus, would he have interacted with Assyrians, known Assyrians? Well, there is that, uh, the legendary story of um, the interaction that he had right before his crucifixion. He, uh, King Abgar, the Assyrian king, uh, um, sends uh, emissaries, Assyrian emissaries, um, to Jesus and says, you know, um, I've heard that your people are uh, basically angry at you and uh, they don't want you here. I, my kingdom here is big enough for two kings. And, and, and King Abgaru had leprosy. He was a leper. And he also had heard that Jesus uh, cures leprosy. And King Abgar was an Assyrian. It was an Assyrian, the Abgar Kume. So he, he, send, they, he sends these emissaries. And so the story goes that Jesus says, I cannot leave uh, here. I have a mission. And, but I will send someone after I 
go back to my father. And I, the, I think the legend is that he takes a parchment and puts it against his face. Mm-hmm. And, and this parchment was taken back with the emissaries to the king. And when he takes that parchment and puts it on his face, his leprosy cures. And at that moment, he uh, uh, proclaims uh, the religion of this new god in Palestine as the religion of the Assyrian people. So that's the story, the legend of how we Assyrians became Christian. Um, and, and the funny, not the funny, but the interesting thing about this parchment is that uh, this parchment supposedly is what is today called the Shard of Turin. And so it just, I don't know how these are all connected, but um, in it, it is, that's, that was the connection between the where Jesus would have met the Assyrians. Uh, and you're saying that's the only only way he would have interacted with an Assyrian, was that's that's the one way you know of his That's the way we know. So If, in fact, a, a person named Jesus right. actually existed who walked the earth, like that's... Correct. It, and if, if such a person did exist, I am sure in the first 30 years of his life, he would have probably been to Assyria has be probably been to Babylon or Nineveh. Why? Or, Why would he have done that? Because in those days, young men to experience life would go on these caravans, these trade uh, the, on caravans on the trade routes, and they would go into other places to discover places. This happened all the time. So, and Babylon was one of those places. In fact, you know that Peter, after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He, what happens to Peter? He doesn't just disappear somewhere. He actually goes to Babylon and stays there for 14 years. When we read about Peter and he comes back to uh, evangelize uh, Christianity, he has already been for 14 years in Babylon. So can you imagine what he has learned in Babylon for 14 years when he comes back? Do you think he's learning about Ashurbanipal's uh, empire theory? You never know. You never know. But I think what he what he probably took from all that was a a uh, a city. Of course, by then Babylon was completely destroyed. It it was well not completely destroyed, but it wasn't the Babylon of the ba- old. It was the 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 new. Persian Babylon. But what he saw there was the glory of a city that uh, was the way it was and 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 what what could also what he would probably took from that was the he learned about the 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 common understanding of spirituality by the Assyrians in those days. Um, I mean, imagine you live somewhere for 14 years. You, of course, you understand a lot of nuances of that culture. I always say, if Peter was more influential on the Christianity, and I think Paul was actually more influential because of his writings and on the the book, his books were pushed in Europe the more. But if Peter was the one, Christianity would have had a more uh, bigger connection to the Assyrian Christianity than it would have had to Western Christianity. But that didn't happen. Paul won the battle and Peter did Assyrians tie their ancient Assyrianism, Assyrian Christianity to Thomas. Yes, yes. And, and But we don't have too much from his understanding of, of Christianity. Let me just say this. Assyrian Christianity is very mystical. Yeah. 
it is not it's the it's mystic, mystery yeah. it's the mystery it's the, you understand the concept yes. of mystery right in, in theology so it's it's it but but the western uh christianity is not it's all very action oriented and all that but assyrian uh, christianity and so and that mysticism all comes from pre-christian era yeah and that's what peter understood so I feel like you and I could be talking for hours and hours, which I know, is man. why we have to do episodes three, four, five, and six. <laughs> I have three things I want to jump into, okay? And then we'll have to close because okay. otherwise I think our time limit for how long a podcast could go, we'd have to split it into like a week-long no, no, we don't Wilfred Alcaz series. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> oh, so um, I want to share with the listeners, here are some titles for some of the topics that were, re- that were previously released in the old Zinda magazine. One topic was, leave politics to politicians, exclamation point. (laughs) Here's another one. A call for harmony and unity among our people, the indigenous Christians of Iraq. Here's another one. Japan offers $5 billion for Iraq. Yeah. I love that. Like, who thought of that? What happened? Yeah, Japanese love Assyrian culture. Yes. So we're all looking forward to... Uh, Zinda Magazine 2.0, the new Zinda. I'm thrilled to hear that you're jumping into that project. I think just knowing you, knowing you're going to give your energy in that way is going to hopefully energize you too and all your team and you get good people around you. And I think find those people that are doing that work now and bring them along. Now I want to talk two other things with you. One, your wife, Nina. How did you meet her? And (laughs) all that good stuff. Um. Now we're getting to the good stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Nina, Nina and I met uh, at, in Chicago for the first time. It was when I was, um, every year, uh, a bunch of us from San Jose would fly to Chicago to join the parade, uh, the Chabnissan parade, either as uh, observers or be a part of it. And uh, that year, I when I did afterwards, I went to friend's house and they had uh, all a bunch of Assyrians uh, gathered in their house for and I saw Nina uh, standing there uh, speaking with a few people and uh, was love at first sight Um, and of course we didn't start talking until probably a year really um, and and a few years later we um, um, we were married. And she's been the perfect spouse for you, considering Absolutely. all the different things you do and Absolutely. how much you're involved. Oh, my God. Can you, I, I can't imagine anybody <laughs> else wanting to live with Wilfred Bedalkos on a yeah. daily basis. She is an amazing person. And we have two beautiful kids, Inanna and Enlil. This is a good time to uh, mention that it is so important. Uh, Steve, take note of this. It's so important to find a person who will truly stand next to you and love what you do and support you it works both ways i do the same thing for 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 my beloved and she does the same thing for me it's so important uh, because uh, we know that um, couples go through a lot in life and nina and i have gone through a lot and we're still going through a lot but it is it is this amazing uh connection that we have that's it let, allows you to endure so much in life so um, oh, and I want to mention something else. This question always no, comes to no, me. We're after. We're no, done. we're not yeah. done. One, go ahead. Go ahead. Quick, <laughs> this thing about, you know, Nin, I, I can't imagine having been married to a non-Assyrian because of you see how I am about yeah. all that. But people keep asking me, is it okay if I get married to a non-Assyrian? Absolutely. This, this whole, see, 
it is that is not the issue the issue is will you produce Assyrians when you are married to this person I know Assyrians who are married to Assyrians their children are as non-Assyrians as it can be it doesn't matter that did not mean anything if you are married to someone and that person and it could be a completely a non-Assyrian it could be a Cambodian but you produce a generation of Assyrians you have done right and this is what how Assyrians used to think before in the ancient days. And Assyrian, you, 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 you look at their books and annals, there were Babylonians marrying Cushites, and Cushites were marrying Sumerians. And they were all part of the same kingdom. Um, what mattered was that the next generation is Assyrian. So um, I'm, I, I'm a true believer in that. If you do come across a person that you truly love and you believe that this person will help you realize the enlightenment that you have as a Syrian and helps you create a new generation of Assyrians and Assyrians and whatever that other person is because it's also equally you're equally sharing your culture with the other person it's absolutely okay i know tomorrow every mother and father will be writing to me and saying why the hell did you say that but it's true it is so you're okay true. with your kids marrying whoever they want to marry william daniel married a swiss his wife was not a syrian and look what happened he created something in me and here I am talking about this identity with you. Why well, I gotta choose Cambodians though? <laughs> <laughs> Why did you choose? Just, <laughs> <laughs> I just thought about it as farthest away from Assyria. <laughs> yeah. <I> okay. <laughs> so, a couple more questions. One, homeland. Assyrians getting their own homeland. Obviously, from our time together, you're saying let the identity, re reimagining the identity, be the priority, and that could lead to a homeland. Great. Do we need a homeland? Is the desire for a homeland for Assyrians robbing us of being happy where we are and taking advantage of the opportunities that are here? Since I was a kid, I've heard we don't have our own homeland. Well, I'm tired of hearing that. What's that? What do we get? What's the end game there mm -hmm. in your in your thought? How, what's the wise approach to this whole thing? Yeah. Wow. And you give me how many minutes to? <laughs> hey, this is like you only got one more question after this one. So. <laughs> so because of the assimilation process that takes place in places away from a homeland, I'm talking about any nationality, any identity, in two or three generations, the assimilation results in full disappearance. Germans who came here Three generations later, they were no longer German. Nobody spoke German. Italians, Irish. Same thing happens in, in any identity. It can happen here. It can happen in Canada. It can happen in Australia. It can happen in China. doesn't matter. The only reason Assyrians today in America are speaking Assyrian is not because of the Assyrians who came here in the early uh, 1900s. Because they lost their... Assyrian language after two generations as well. It's because of the wave of immigrants that came 
from Iran, Iraq, Syria to America. I was on the wave that came in the 70s, late 70s. I come in and, and everybody else with me and I mean with my parents and they create associations in San Jose and Turlock and other. So what would happen if there is no homeland? And as you can, as you know, Assyrians keep coming and keep coming. And look at what has happened the last 20 years. Our population from almost 2 million in Middle East has gone down to probably less than 300,000 in Iraq, Syria, and as, as those that truly think of themselves as, as Assyrian. Less than 300,000. Some will laugh at me. They will say, are you kidding me? It's probably 100,000. I'm being conservative here. From 2 million to 300,000, thanks to the liberation of Iraq and Syria by the Western powers. Wilfred is using air quotes as he says the liberation. <laughs> so imagine what will happen in 20 years. So the purpose of a homeland is to keep a group of natives of any nationality in one place where they can freely administer themselves in the language and the identity that the, as it is attributed to them. That is true for the Kurds, that's true for Turks, that's true for Assyrians, and anybody else in Iraq and Syria. Now, if what is the political structure of this homeland? I don't know. That's also something that has to be examined. But we need a geographic location in the Middle East where we can do all this freely. Now, could it be a province in Iraq, a small area in Iran, a, an, a region in Syria? I don't know. Well, maybe I do know, but I don't want to share it here at this point. But it is something that we need to do. Now, why is that? Why, why can that not be done in Turlock? That's what people always tell me. Why can't we have a little Assyrian Turlock? That's because here you are removing the physical connection between your spiritual identity and the physical identity. That is paramount. So when, let me give you an example. The wonderful young men and women who go to visit Iraq, northern Iraq, uh, on Gishru. that. Gishru, thank you. When they come back, they will t all tell you the same thing. When they go to these villages and the churches, it is a spiritual awakening for them. I can totally understand that. Why? It's just a small village, just like a village in Mexico. It's a rundown church, just like a rundown church in, in, in some... Cambodia. Cambodia. <laughs> there are no churches there. But it why? Because as soon as you go there, some mystical gravity pulls you. You don't understand what that is, but you begin to feel it. It is 7,000 years that's pulling you down. 
It's telling you, you have roots here. Why have you forsaken this land? Why are you in Turlock and Sydney? Hey. And, okay, I'm not Turlock. San Jose, Sydney. It's, why are you there? Now, we know why we're there. It was a survival. It was for the survival. Now, if I leave, you leave, and they leave, we are abandoning the physical connection. So everyone's talking about this. Let's create a global village. Let's create this diaspora, this... Yes, but that's half of the truth. And slowly, that will too disappear. So I want to take this outside the realm of the Assyrian podcast for a second because I think you're, you've got the mind to talk through this. But there is a school of thought that says, look, all these ethnicities, all these cultures, this nationalism, you know, 500 years from now, it's all gone. American, Indian, whatever, it's all gone. It's a whole new restructuring, it's a whole new world, a whole new way of viewing ourselves as human. In some ways, is it futile to say, you know what, we Assyrians, we've got to preserve this homeland so we can preserve our ethnic identity because the reality is that the ethnic identity is morphing and changing. And in 500 years, we Assyrians are not even going to recognize, even if we had our own homeland, we wouldn't even know those people. We wouldn't even probably understand them linguistically. I, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Someone about, uh, about a year ago asked me, it was a student uh, in my class, asked me this. He said, in 100 years, we're probably all going to abandon uh, our flags. Our, our, not, no, no, no. It, he went further. He said, abandon this planet and go somewhere else. So when we do, what was, was it all worth it? Yeah, that's, actually, <laughs> no, that's, actually, that's profound, right? right, if right? We're, so, we're now colonizing on right, the moon. Exactly. And people are like, they ditch the earth. When right. they get there, are right. they going to do like... The moon Assyrians? Or right, what's right. Gonna... So this, is, this was my response to him. I said, we started this big mess called civilization. And I want to be the last person who turns off the lights on Earth <laughs> when we go to the other planet. <laughs> this is how we have to think. This is how you continue as Assyrians another 7,000 years. It's not about Urmi, Nineveh, Erbil. It's about the planet. It's about we created the humanity as we know it. Before the Sumerians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians, the civilization had nothing remotely resembling what we have right now. Even before Greeks and, and Romans. Greeks, when they came to Babylon, they were just astonished. They're like, wow, we've been writing about all this stuff. Look at this. These guys have been doing this for thousands of years. They just didn't have a Plato and, and Socrates to write down this information. They've, they've been doing it. It's, it's, in, it's right there in action. The concepts of democracy, parliamentary representation, it's all Sumerian. Not even Assyrian, before Assyrians. So we've done it all. Are you telling me that I have to abandon 7,000 years of constant development just because some 
half-naked uh, um, um, fighter in 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 some Bedouin garb is waving his uh, his sword at me and, um, and 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 accusing me of being a pagan person in the name of Isis? Absolutely not. Do you think I'm going to do this because of some political? Uh, um, in consequences that are going on in northern Iraq? Absolutely not. When you have that enlightenment, these things are all external facets. They will come and go. Steve, what the Mongols did to us in the late, in, in, in the 13th century was a hundred times worse than what ISIS did. A hundred times. What the Turks did in Turkey to us in 1915 was much worse than what ISIS did. We're still around. We're still here. There will be genocides. There will be massacres. There will be a lot of... But we will still be around. For one reason. Because we are the enlightened. We just have to find that light. We have to understand, as an Assyrian, whether you're a Muslim, Assyrian, Buddhist... Christian or atheist, as an Assyrian, what is your purpose on earth? And to reach that, you have to do a lot of self-examination. So thank you. Thank you for that. And now I want to ask the question we ask everyone who's on the Assyrian podcast. If you could say one thing to all the listeners from all around the world that listen to the Assyrian podcast, what would you say? Well, um, I would say every day think Assyrian. That's it. Think Assyrian. To think Assyrian is not easy. We think as Germans, Americans, Canadians, Australians first, and then think Assyrian, if we even, even do that. But every day you need to stop and think Assyrian, to understand your position in the world and constantly become enlightened. You will know that you have become enlightened when you bring order to chaos wherever you walk in. That was what an Assyrian did in the ancient times. That's what Assyrian did during the Christian times. And that's what we are going to continue to do in our homeland, in occupied Assyria, in America, in the West, North, East, South, until the last day on Earth. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, and we'll catch up with you on Zinda, the new Zinda. Thank you. Thank you.